You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocals of Cryptopsy, and you're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. Devastation on the Nation 2020 is less than a month away. This year's lineup features Rotting Christ, Borknagar, Wolfheart, Abigail Williams, and Imperial Triumphant. And guess what? Three of these shows have already sold out, and I can guarantee you that more of them are going to sell out. So if you do not have your tickets for this epic tour, you absolutely should go pick them up right now if you attend on going. This is a tour that you do not want to miss. Devastation on the Nation 2020 is proudly brought to you by Metal Festival Tours, Continental Touring, and the Vox and Hops Podcast. You can get your tickets right now via the link in the description of this podcast, or you could simply go to metalfestivaltours.com. Speaking of a party you do not want to miss, I have organized some Vox and Hops Devastation on the Nation craft beer parties. These are either pre-show parties or after-show parties. All information about these Vox and Hops Devastation on the Nation craft beer parties are also available on MetalFestivalTours.com and via the link in the description of this podcast. For each of these events, there is a special Devastation brew that has been brewed for the event. Come out and party with a bunch of other Vox and Hops heads, the Devastation on the Nation crew and band members, and at some of these events, even I'm going to be there. Come out and party Devastation on the Nation craft beer style. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Vicky Sarakis from The Agonist, and you're listening to Vox and Hops Podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Vicky. Huge shout out to Vicky and the rest of the Agonist crew. They are about to embark on an epic North American trek alongside Flesh God Apocalypse. If you can make it out to one of these dates, you absolutely should. The Agonists are a band that I'm super proud to have known since the beginning of their career. I have much love and respect for them. They were just nominated for Juno, which is uh, the Canadian version of the Grammys up here in Canada. In my mind, they're going to win it. So uh, huge shout out to the Agonist. Huge shout out to Vicky. Much love and respect. On today's episode, I am with Charlie Marvel, the guitarist of Visceral Discord. Here it is, Vox and Hops, episode number 114. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everybody? Today I'm with Charlie Marvel from Visceral Discourage. Super stoked to be with you. I'm super stoked to be here. We met on Devastation on the Nation. Yes, we in did. 2016. 16, yeah. We didn't have much time to chat on that. It was a it was a hectic tour. It was everybody was kind of we were just getting over the van breakdown, and that's we were kind of rattled. That was our first U.S. tour, so that was your first U.S. tour. Yep, I didn't know that. Yeah, we started our first tour ever was Europe with Disentomb in uh, February of 2016, and then we did Canada back to back with U.S. Wow. Yeah, I remember you guys had like a a major van issue. Yeah, we were stuck in Ignis, Canada, for three days. Missed all sorts of. Sh- I mean, we missed five shows. I think the, the last five of that tour. That was a bummer, but it so talk me through that moment sitting in a hotel room. I am assuming. Yep. Well, I was panicking trying to come up with a workaround to you know like oh if we do this we can make it to this show. You know if we do this we can make it to that show. We can buy a van. We could rent a van. And it was they had to sit me down and go just accept it. We're gonna miss it. Sit down. 
And I'm, I'm sitting there like, I don't want to miss these shows. You know, I mean, the last show was Modified Ghost Fest with Dying Fetus and Cattle. And so that was the one I was upset about. But, you know, they were like, you're torturing yourself. Just relax. And then we ended up having to sit there until one of these. There were three shops in this town, two of which said they won't work on it. And so we had to beg one guy and he went, you know, fine. And he, he got us out of there in a day. And then we were, I mean, we had to go from Ignis, Canada to Washington State. And that, yeah, that was a 26-hour drive. Unbelievable. Yeah. I remember you guys pulling up in Houston, Texas. Am I right? Yep. Yeah. That was a fun day. That was an interesting day because all we knew on that package was Seeker. We did not know anybody else. So, And we were a little bit intimidated by you guys, Cryptopsy, and biggest band we had toured with to date. No, no, so. no. But, but on, honestly, you guys didn't seem intimidated whatsoever. Very cold stone faced. <laughs> we keep our, we keep our emotions in check. You got you guys seemed a bit cold. <laughs> yeah, we were unsure about everybody. You know, we we like to feel everybody out at first and get to you know get a feel for how people react, how they're going to be. We don't want to just come in and be Mister Bubbly, like, hey, how you doing? And then go get away from me, please now. <laughs> well, that'd be their problem because True. They, they'd be losing out on some good people. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Talk me through uh, the soundtrack of your youth. You're growing up in your house. What music was playing? What music did your parents listen to? So my mom, I got I got a lot of my music influence from my mom. She was a big Ozzy, Black Sabbath. That's sick. 80s child. Uh, my dad was big into Chicago and like the Rolling Stones and bluegrass. My dad's a big bluegrass fan. Um, I went to a lot of bluegrass festivals as a child, which that's a good thing. It was it was a lot of fun. I love it. Um, not my go-to, but if it comes on, I hear a banjo and I'm like, okay, you know, I I can groove to it. That's, <laughs> reminds me of being a kid. I grew into a lot of punk. Early on, I um, Bad Religion, The Offspring, the early Offspring, not the stuff that people started to hate, the Smash, and but um, from there it went to Megadeth, which I got a lot of I got a lot of hate for. I I started with Megadeth, then went to Metallica, then Slayer, and I, a lot of people said that was wrong, the wrong path. Yeah, because you should have started where. A lot of people said I should have started with Metallica, but and I, then gone more extreme into Megadeth. Yeah, I guess. But um, and then I gradually worked towards uh, bands like, I mean, I was a kid. Bands like Children of Bodom and um, Three Inches of Blood, more melodic stuff. And then I took a really big jump straight to Black Dahlia Murder, and I just dove in with like Swedish melodic death for a while. And I wasn't really into anything super brutal probably until I was in my 20s. That's where I really started to experiment with, with the brutal stuff. And I found a world that I never knew existed, even being a, a metalhead, quote unquote. You know, I, I got introduced to um, Viremia, like out of nowhere. And they're super technical, like almost alien type, brutal death. Um, was it something you understood immediately, or were you just no taken aback? And I was I was taken aback, and I had to listen to it for a bit. And I got you know I went down the tech path, but after a while, the more of like brain drill and viremia, they all very super fast arpeggios everywhere. It blended to me for a while, and then I kind of went back to the melodic death, and somehow I ended up in slam. I couldn't tell you how. It was just one of those. I fell backwards into it, and 
that's yeah you fell into the band or you fell into the genre like as a fan i fell into the genre as a fan i i used to when i was young i was i was an elitist so, oh that's stupid they don't they don't play anything complicated they're just playing dumb chords and it wasn't till i actually gave it a chance that i could fa- i found the groove in it and was able to really appreciate the, just the rhythm of it but then when it comes to visceral i i fell backwards into that i i knew billy for almost 10 years and he kind of hit me up out of nowhere we were in a band together and he went hey visceral has a guitar spot open do you want it or not so it was kind of the right place right time you were a fan of the band though yes yeah and i was i i was taken aback i was actually really scared because i had never done anything of that caliber before so it was i was stepping into a completely new world with that and it was terrifying for somebody who had just played local dive bars and that to going to going to jam with them and them going so yeah we're gonna go on tour in in three months you have three months and that was that tour that was that europe tour. no way yeah that's i mean when i say fell backwards it was just a tumble and then you've just been sprinting yep since then yep and that's i i can't i can't run fast enough like i I just want to keep going (laughs) (laughs) tell me about your first impression of visceral disgorge so the first time i ever heard them i kind of just thought what the hell is this um I, I was at the time very big into Black Dahlia Murder, you know, all the Swedish melodic stuff, Shreddy. And I heard this, and I, I could listen to it, and I was like, this is cool, but what am I listening to? And then it was, you know, Billy kind of explained the, the genre as a whole, and that kind of unlocked that door. And then I was, I was able to pick out the pitter-patter riffs of the Brutal Death influence, and I was like, okay, so this is kind of not... Any, in any way, shape, or form, similar, but structurally similar, and that was that was the bridge to me that really just kind of led me into it. So, we were just delivered a beautiful beer. We are at La Saint Buck Brasserie Artisanale, which is one of my favorite craft beer places in Montreal. If you're downtown Montreal and you're trying to drink a good craft beer, you should absolutely come here. They deliver us a Belgian white beer. It's called Le Repentante. Clocks in with a 5.5% ABV. Let's see what this sucker's got. Yeah. That's not bad at all. It's nice. It's smooth. It's clean. It's very Um, smooth. It's got a classic white color. Uh, A little bit of uh, that, like, banana peel finish. Yeah. Nice and mellow. Smells nice. Are you a craft beer enthusiast? Not at all. I can appreciate a good beer, but I was never much of a drinker, honestly. I'll drink a beer when when I'm offered one. Um... But I'm more of a... I haven't found mine yet, if that makes sense. I haven't found my beer that just gets me. <laughs> that, so. that entices you to go hunt for it and then consume yep. it. Yep. That's, I mean, I'll drink just about anything but IPAs. I, I, for whatever reason, every IPA I've ever had, it just... I don't know if it's the hops. Probably the hops. Too bitter for me. But this is nice. It's nice and smooth. I, yeah. yeah. I really enjoy it. Yep. Definitely not my go-to style, but I, I definitely enjoy a nice white beer every once in a while. Sure. Take me back to your first beer. Do you remember it? I do. So my first beer um, was sadly a Coors Light. Uh, 
My a friend of mine, his mom was the neighborhood mom who was cool. We were all 17, and she'd she'd get a 30 pack for everybody on a weekend, and as long as we weren't driving, she was you know we crashed at her house. She could supervise, and I hated it. It tasted horrible. Was it cold? Yes, it was cold. But the more I had, the more I could stand it. And then I went oddly to Yingling. I, Yingling, is, I, I found I preferred darker beers then. And I stuck with Yingling for a while. And after, I think I got sick on it once. And I just, I can do one every now and then. But getting sick on a beer for me was a bad taste. It just brings me back to that moment. There, there, are, there are some consequences when it comes to craft beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with Jack Daniels to me, though. I... Way too much of that, and now all I smell is that night. And then the puking of it afterwards. Yep. Uh, Talk me through how you became a guitarist, why the guitar. You had the bluegrass influence from your father. I assumed he played guitar. No, actually, my mom played clarinet and flute and saxophone, but my dad was not musically inclined at all. What really got me into guitar was Iron Maiden. I heard, uh, I think it was Wasted Years for the first time. Yeah, I was probably 13 or 14, and... The more I listened to it, all I could think was, I want to do that. And I had to beg my parents for years. I, I was 16 when I got my first guitar. And it was always assumed by my family that it was a phase, never would go anywhere, do anything. And then I joined my first band a couple years later. And I mean, I was horrible at first, like everybody is. But about five years in, they kind of started to change their tune. They realized that I was... I was still progressing, still, you know, I taught myself everything. That's, I sat in my room for eight, ten hours a day just learning. Um, what steps did you take while you were learning? Was it just learning songs, doing covers, watching YouTube videos? Actually, I bought tab books, and I kind of just forced myself to learn things that were way outside of my comfort zone. Uh, the first tab books I ever bought were... Um, the best of Ozzy Osbourne. They had Bark at the Moon, Crazy Train, all of that. Um, I bought Iron Maiden's Anthology. I bought uh, Rust in Peace by Megadeth, the, the tab book for that. And I didn't really get very good at any of those songs, but I learned enough with technique that I was able to branch out and learn simpler songs because they were all way more than I could chew, being a novice guitarist at best. But then I had a, a friend of mine who was very talented, naturally gifted at guitar. He, um, he wrote down some arpeggios for me and just said, here, learn those. So I spent three years on that, the wow. getting, getting solid on those. And um, they getting, I, I don't know whether it was refining my picking with my hands, but doing that helped me get more, more tight and accurate on everything else. And at that point, I kind of just broke out into a sprint. It was one of those, any, any song I looked up, pretty much I could learn. And from just seeing the tabs or from your ear? I could do little things by ear. I, I could get really close, but I would need the tabs to go back and actually make it correct. That might be off by a fret or two here and there. At what point did your parents uh, believe that you were doing something that was worthwhile? It would have been just after our first Europe tour. Really? Yep. Okay, that, so it took that long. That yeah. was when it clicked for them. That, that Did they come see your shows? Are they parents they, like that? They did. They've been very supportive. Um, my, my very first ever band was horrible. <laughs> and my dad... What was it? Was it like... At the gates, Black Dahlia style, sort of. Yeah, I'm assuming. It was, yeah, it was like, like techni- more technical, melodic, and um, 
We played at this dive bar in Baltimore called the Sidebar. Very small, dingy, but kind of punk rock, hole-in-the-wall icon bar. And uh, we're getting ready to go on, and in walks my dad, looking completely out of place. Of course. And it was it was a cool feeling, though, because I didn't think he would come. I told him where I was going to be, and, you know, if you want to come, we're going to be here. And he came in, and he's been to, I think, six of my shows, like, throughout my almost 10-year music, like, show-playing career. So... He's pretty supportive, I'd say. That's amazing. Yeah. Shout out to your pops. Yeah, shout out to my dad. <laughs> He's also Charlie. So, Shout out to Charlie. Yep. <laughs> Let's touch on, uh, I know that you have a big passion for making knives. I do. How, 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 did, how did this come about? What is it about the blade? I've always been interested in knives. They've always been, ever since I was young, I've had a knife collection, but... One day, I fell into a YouTube hole where I watched probably 18 hours of just blacksmithing videos and stuff like that. So I decided to build my own forge, bang on some steel, um, and then I saw, like, from, from the, all of that YouTube video search, I saw other knife-making videos, and I just kind of dove in and watched and watched, found out what tools that I had that I could use, and just swung for the fences on my first one. It turned out horrible, but it was my <laughs> you first. You still have it? Yes, I do. I'll never get rid of it just because it was the very first one. Um, but I've been doing it consistently for about four years now. So, And I like to think I've gotten a lot better. I sell, I sell a good amount of them. So. That's sick. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. The, you said you built a forge. What goes into making a forge? The forge itself uh, really consists of a body. I built mine out of a. I built mine with to burn charcoal, which is the easiest way. I took a steel bucket and I mixed plaster and sand to make a refractory. Cast that into the bucket, cut a hole in it to feed air through. Hooked up a blow dryer, and then you fill it with charcoal, light it on fire, turn the blow dryer on, it gets up to about three thousand degrees in a matter Jesus of minutes. Jesus Christ! Really? Yeah. It's um. Surprisingly Inside, simple. you do this inside. I do that outside. Yeah. <laughs> I use my propane inside. I'll, I'll, I use my propane forge on a concrete floor, and that's just okay. a big square with a burner in it. Modified grill burner, basically. What, what, what's uh, style knives you make? What, what is your favorite style? My favorite style is honestly the karambit. Um, I don't know if you know anything I about I don't know okay. anything about knives, but I'm interested. A karambit is a, a modified farming tool from uh, like East Asia, Southeast Asia. But it was it had a ring that you'd wear on your index finger, and it had a swooped blade that would come out behind your pinky that would hook upwards, so they would use it for cutting grain. Yes. It was adapted for assassins because you could hide it and flick it out with that ring. It is probably one of the most difficult blade shapes to make just because the blade is um, concave. But it's so satisfying to get it done. And people people love them and they buy them left and right. Just because not a lot of people make them by hand. They're 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 a pain. But what, what is it about knives that people just love so much? It's it's something that's that's been around for centuries. I think I think it's the general use. Like you can use a knife for anything. It can it can be a tool, it can be a weapon, it can be a showpiece. Yeah, you know, I made I've made Damascus steel knives that people don't use. They just put on a on a shelf. Really? Yeah. Which in 
I'm grateful that they do that, but they're expensive. Do you, do you feel like a knife is meant to be used? I do. I do. If um, There's only been one that I made purely for decoration, and that's because it was a medieval dagger that was for a really close friend of mine's brother. Um, he collects things like that, and she wanted to get him something special for his, for his birthday. So she contacted me, and I knew it was going to be decoration, but I still gave it everything that I could have to, to make it beautiful. How many knives do you bring on tour? Zero. Smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I used to carry one with me all the time, but I think it was 2017 when we were on the Suffocation Tour, I think. Such a sick lineup. That was my favorite lineup by far. Every I, sp I spoke with Travis about this, about how lucky you guys were. It was a one in a million. I mean, it was the last second offer that we just, we couldn't turn it down. It was, who could? Frank's last tour. Right. I mean, it was one of those. If Turning it down would be a mistake for anybody because Frank's last tour. But um, no, I had, I had a really nice Kershaw folding knife that Canada had just changed their laws. on. It was like October 1st they went into effect. You could open mine with one hand, and they had outlawed that. So... I mean, I spent like 120 bucks on this knife, and it was my workhorse knife. I used it for everything, cutting tape, screwdriver, everything. And we get to the Canadian border, and they ask whose it was when they searched our bus, and I said, it's mine. I'd been through the border with it three or four times already, and they said, well, you can't have this, and we have to confiscate it. And my heart dropped. You know, and they said, your options are take it home or trash it. to ship it home? No, they, they wanted me to physically remove it from the border and either throw it away myself or like find a post office and but so, you're on tour so you right, threw it so out I told them they can keep it and destroy it and whatever but after someone, that it's at someone's house right now yeah <laughs> that's uh, I mean so yeah I, uh, it is I, I have a feeling it got pocketed same day just you know but after that I never I might grab a, a cheap knife after we go through borders just in case I need to cut tape you know, like I said, I I was a Boy Scout for a while, so I had I have one. I try to have one at all times because you never know. How long does it take to make a knife that you're satisfied with? On average, between eight to fourteen hours. Really? Jesus yeah. Christ! Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's a very so labor talk me through the process. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm forging one, it's more like twenty. Hey, let's let's do that one. The, the, all right. The real handmade knife. All right, so I use a lot of recycled steel. Um, my, my father owns an auto shop, so I get a lot of spring spring it's steel, perfect. which is yeah. it's yeah. super durable, really good for knives. And, you know, I'll, I have to heat it in my propane forge. I'll use, it's the consistent, most consistent forge that I have. You got to let it come up to about 1,800 degrees before you can really start hammering on it. And then it takes about... Three hours of, of rough hammering to get it roughly to shape, and it's some people will start with a plan and they'll follow their plan meticulously, step by step, and they'll get exactly what they want. I go by the seat of my pants and let the steel move how it wants to move, and whatever comes out, that's what I pursue. Um, so about three hours in, I take it to my my belt grinder, which is a two inch wide by seventy two inch long belt that runs at about fourteen thousand RPM. To just start refining the shape by machine and that'll take me about a half hour to get it cleaned up to where I want 
And the most important part is the next part. It's the heat treatment process. When it before you harden a blade, it's just steel. It won't do any. You could hack into something with it, but it it could break. It could bend. So you heat it up to critical temperature. Every that's, steel that's is different. That's when you see like the knife glowing red. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you'd heat it up to a critical temperature, and spring steel specifically, you dunk it in oil to to rapidly cool it, and it, it takes the grain structure of the steel and, and condenses it super tight, it makes it very very hard. Too hard, in fact, to, to use at that point. So once it's hardened, you have to bake it for about two hours at 400-ish degrees. And that relaxes everything enough to where it's super durable but still really hard. Really? Yeah, hard enough to hold the edge, not hard enough to snap when you hit something. Really? Yeah, it's it's a lot of science. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Yeah, yeah. and then and then there's the, the all the handwork, and that's what takes the longest. Like on the handle? The handle work, uh, sanding the blade by hand to make the, the scratches and lines all uniform. That takes a, a good four to five hours on its own. Wow. Yeah. And then polishing, sharpening, making sheaths, and I do it all by hand. How, how do you make the handle? Where, how do you approach that? I use two types of materials. It'll either be a natural or a synthetic. I use um, a synthetic material called G10. It's one of the most durable synthetic materials out there. It's made of um, plastic fibers and fiberglass resin. They cast it into a sheet. But with a lot of the forged knives, I like to use wood because they're it, more natural look. Um, a handmade something needs ex- exactly. something real. Right. So I use, uh, I use a lot of uh, maple. In my opinion, maple is just, when you stain it, just, just darker than the white that it comes, it's beautiful. Oh, Canada. Yeah. <laughs> so that, a lot of filing, a lot of... It, that's a lot of precise work, making sure everything is dead flat. And it's, if it's not flat, it'll gap, and you can look through it and see light. It won't fit right when it's done, and you you wouldn't think you'd notice. I, my first couple, I was like, oh, that it'll be okay. That gap is fine. You feel every bit of it, like in your hand when you yeah, hold it. Yeah, you can yeah, feel yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So, part of the perfectionist part of me is what takes a long, long time to make that. But I feel like if I'm going to put my name on it and and try to sell it, it's got to be perfect. What, where can people buy your knives? Mainly through Instagram. I, I post everything through Instagram. So you just make a knife, put it up, and that's it. You don't have like a store no, where people can order in advance. I've, I've been trying to get a store. I do take customs. I just let people message me through Instagram and tell me what they want, and I'll give them a quote. And fifty percent deposit up front gets them the secured commission. What would be piece. like a, a standard pricing for a Charlie Marvel knife? Roundabouts one hundred and seventy-five American um, for Damascus. It's a much more labor-intensive process, so I charge about double to triple, like three fifty to four hundred. So Damascus, I could talk for hours on that. So let's touch on it because I don't know what Damascus is. I know that it's it's a special type of steel. Yes. Damascus is two different types of steel. Um, Usually one sort of stainless and one not stainless. They, you have to weld them together and then heat them to almost melting temperature and squish them till they're one solid piece of steel. And that's something you do. Yes. Crazy. It's very labor intensive. It's a lot of work. But is it like unbreakable? No. It's it's uh, it just looks really pretty because you can etch it in an acid and the stainless steel won't etch, but the the non stainless will turn black. 
so Got it'll, it. it'll yeah, leave yeah. really pretty patterns and yeah. you, there are endless possibilities on what you can do with it there are people that make actual mosaic pieces out of the steel through and that too much math for me I just I like to, to twist it and it creates these nice wavy line patterns that are they catch your eye and they just draw you to it and it's 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 really pretty to look at I don't know if you've done this. Correct me if you have. Uh, why is there no visceral disgorge knives for sale? I haven't done that yet. It's mainly because I haven't been able to get our logo small enough to uh, fit to on add, the handle to fit on our handle or the blades. Or at least just put it on the sheath. I could do that too. Uh, I think it's it's an easy. I wanted easy to do meat item. cleavers for a while. I want to do big meat cleavers with sick. visceral disgorge on them. Yeah, that's a lot of people said they were interested, and then I I kind of started to get things together, and then everyone backed out and it, but I'll probably still do it it's a, and it's a lot I like working with my hands I always have so it's a lot of fun to take something that's just to what most people would see as junk and turn it into something that most people would look at and go wow that's beautiful I, I've seen that's, what you've done they, they're great so, thank you, know, you so yeah. much let's talk about um, a dream tour Okay. You claim Cryptopsy is one of the bigger bands that you've toured with. I rivaled that the Suffocation was a little bit bigger. They were the biggest. Yeah, yeah. you guys were the first like big name that okay. we've ever toured with. What and would then- be a dream tour that you could tour? If you could pick. If I could pick, uh, Black Dahlia would headline. They're they are my number one influence as far as guitar playing goes. Um, and I've probably fanboyed to them enough because I've met them several times. They're all sweethearts. They are. They're amazing guys. And they're fans of Visceral Discord as well. So, But, yeah, they're my number one influence. Um, so them, probably Dying Fetus because they're there'd Baltimore be, there'd boys. Be, there'd be no slam without Fetus. Exactly. And they're Baltimore guys. They practice ah. literally right down the, the hall from us. And suffocation. I'm sorry. The Slam Kings. Yeah. Yeah. But Dying Fetus, they brought a lot of that hardcore influence into the death metal scene. I mean, they have a style that's their own. Like, nobody can really rival Fetus's style to me. So Suffocation may have created Slam, but Fetus really brought that hardcore beatdown into death metal. And Being from Baltimore, the Maryland Death Fest must have been such a huge influence on you. It was a bucket list thing for me for a long time, and I actually didn't get to play one until 2016. That was my first time, and it was everything I ever wanted it to be. I mean, it was going as a, a spectator, and you know, being on that end of it was really cool, but seeing things from the other end, wild. It's one of my top shows I've ever played. Evan and Ryan do such a great job of putting I mean they do everything themselves and they just they crush it yeah huge shout out because it's uh, one of my on that devastation we did an unsolved that's right you guys did the Maryland Death Fest at Maryland Death Fest and it's one of my favorite gigs I've ever played yeah that's we yeah, when we did it in 2016 I mean we played the Thursday the pre-party and we were with Jungle Rot and a couple other it was the brutal death metal night but it was wild I mean we had soundstage completely packed and yeah I love I love it, yeah. That's. I hope they keep doing what they're doing for a long time. And I love what they're doing. They're branding it around the globe now. Yes. It's amazing. We did Netherlands Death Fest on our, on our first Euro tour. We just did it last year. It was amazing. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. That's, they got the Quebec Death Fest now up in Montreal. They that's the right. the LA Death Fest. They're, they're going to take over the Death Fest world. I mean, they've got their brand. They Everywhere they go, they can turn it into gold. That's, I agree. Charlie, thank you so much for coming, drinking a beer with me. 
Of course. Talking about knives. Always. <laughs> Cheers, brother. Cheers. Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. I had such a great time with Charlie that night. It was such an epic, epic tour. The Decade of Human Suffering Part 3, the ingested run that came through Montreal, was a crazy party night. That's what happens when a bunch of my brothers come through Montreal. We come out and we have a good time. The Ingested Boys and the Visceral Disgorge Boys, much love and respect to them. I had such a great night. Can't wait to hang with you guys again. If you guys are interested in purchasing one of the really very interesting and excellently handmade knives that Charlie spoke about, I have put the link to his Instagram page where you can order custom knives from him. If this is something that you're into, you should absolutely go check it out because he makes high quality handmade knives. Huge shout out to Charlie. Can't wait to hang out again, brother. As always, the best way to support the Vox and Hops podcast is via the Vox and Hops Big Cartel page. Anything that I receive through there is greatly appreciated. There would be no Vox and Hops podcast without all you Vox and Hops heads supporting me. I have much love and respect for everyone. You can also just simply talk about the podcast. Word of mouth is how this thing has grown. So if you have any craft beer friends, metalhead friends, spread the word about the podcast. Tell them to subscribe, to like, and to follow the social media pages. And that is also greatly appreciated. I hope you guys have a great weekend. And then I hope you have a great rest of the week after that. But most importantly, I hope you remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hopsheads. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.